Welcome to the Benito Juarez Experience. I am Juan Navarro Rivera, along with Luciano Joshua Gonzalez. And today we are revisiting the religious left, and mostly because there's a recent article in the New York Times that featured uh, this topic again. So basically, this are revisiting of the religious left, um, similar to what we had discussed in the first episode of this show, and what is interesting is that, once again, there's no talk of the secular left in these times where Trump and the Trump administration has basically made a lot of concessions to the religious right. Uh, and so those are the two things we're going to be focusing today. It's on who is part of the religious left based on that article and some other sources of data. What are the shortcomings of the religious, uh, of the religious left uh, which we're going to talk in terms of politics. And finally, why is the secular left keep uh, getting ignored? So why people don't talk about the secular left, or at least the mainstream media is not talking about the secular left. So those are the three main things that we're going to be discussing today in this revisiting of the religious left. So I think that it would be a, I think that it would be a really good idea for us to talk about the New York Times article first, because the New York Times article is it's really interesting. It talks about not it not only talks about the religious left, but it also talks about the religious left in a region that people don't often consider them. It starts off talking about them in Tennessee, specifically in Nashville, and while Nashville itself isn't extraordinarily conservative as most cities are, it's interesting to me that it starts off talking about it in the Bible Belt, where for the past couple of decades, people at least have this idea that the Republicans have largely taken over. Yes, and so yeah, so the piece is by Lori Goodstein, which is their, her, their star religion reporter, who has done some really good reporting on religion over the years. And yeah, so she goes into the Bible Belt, there's uh, there's that in Tennessee. There's another profile of Reverend Barber in North Carolina, Dr. Barber, who, who runs the Moral Mondays. And there's a, a, you know, also an interview with Jim Wallace, who runs Sojourners and who's kind of like the face of evangelical liberalism, although in many ways he's not very liberal, which goes into the shortcomings of this movement. And also an interview with Daniel Schultz, which actually goes through and has a very active Twitter account uh, by the name of Pastor Dan, uh, who is a, a UCC, United Church of Christ, pastor in the Midwest. And so it looks at these very different uh, perspectives. Uh, you know, a, a UCC pastor, which is basically a mainline white Protestant denomination, Dr. Barber, who basically runs a, a black evangelical congregation. Jim Wallace, who runs a, a white uh, evangelical movement. But also there is the fact that along you know, these traditionally Christian groups, the religious left is also comprised by Muslims, uh, Latino Catholics, uh, and, uh, and other religious minorities. So it's a very diverse 
coalition. I mean, if you want to call it a coalition, it's a, it's a very diverse and eclectic group, which is consistent with the findings of uh, PRI, uh, the Public Religion Research Institute, a, a 2013 survey, and a more recent analysis by, by the research director, Dan Stotts, finds that these, you know, the, the religious left is certainly more diverse than the religious right, but also that diversity leads to some problems, not in terms of, of the issues that they want to handle. And so it's very easy to talk about the religious left in this context of Donald Trump as president because he's basically a very intersectional president in the sense that he pisses everybody off. <laughs> and so a lot of people are against him for various reasons, but to make these into a true political movement, they actually have to set aside some differences, and those differences are in specific policy matters that makes it very hard to uh, smooth out. It's very interesting to me that throughout the tone, um, throughout your, throughout what you just said now, you were taking almost the exact same tone as the article, which includes um, a section, not not right in the middle, but rather towards the end of the first quarter of the article. Which, by the way, surprisingly long piece for the New York Times, much longer than I'm used to from that site. Um, it notes that there are that there's a wide diversity but that this diversity ends up making things less streamlined. One of the things the article notes is that it says that those on the left say that they don't need to mirror the Christian right strategic alliance with the, with the Republican Party. And that was an exact quote from the article, which is interesting to me, but that goes back to their historical disagreements with the Democratic Party, which makes sense. They're not... Um, which makes sense for a variety of reasons, most notably historically, because the Democratic Party never needed, at least it never seriously needed the Christian left. It never seriously needed any sort of religious left coalition as much as the Republicans did. A lot of people, a lot of historians note that the Republican Party's current coalition, its current set of goals, stretches back to the 70s when Christian conservatives first became politically active. Yes, but I think to some extent you have it backwards, or at least my interpretation is uh, it's a little bit different from what you think. And, and, it, and for that, I want to use these piece by... Because what you're talking about in terms of not wanting to mirror the religious right method, methodology and kind of try to stay above the fray is what Mark Silk brings in his uh, piece, in his blog, Spiritual Politics of the Religion News Survey, Service. Uh, and so Mark, uh, who was a former colleague of mine at, at Trinity College, and who's probably one of the best like religion and politics bloggers out there, basically talks about how the religious right became a thing, but particularly that it was a movement that took over the Republican Party. So it wasn't like the Republican Party were 
fishing for boats. There was some of that, certainly, like in, especially in this context of civil rights, sexual liberty, uh, or what you know, all, all these hellish things that are happening, at least from their perspective, uh, creates these particular point in time in which evangelicals are seeing the culture going to hell and having in finding the need to get dirty in politics. You know, the, the, the mainstream narrative of the emergence of the religious, left, the religious right basically states that after the Scopes trial in 1925, even particularly with religious fundamentalists, basically retract from the mother world and then reemerge in the late 60s and 70s because you know, they realize that you know, the world has passed them over and they want to use politics to correct them. And so, so the, the emergence of the religious right to one extent is a reaction to that. There's a very good biography of Jerry Falwell by uh, Michael Sean Winters uh, who basically, you know, pinpoints as Jerry Falwell as this critical figure in the development of those politics. But also, the Republican Party is starting their Southern strategy, and they realize that you know, there's a constituency out there that overlaps, right? It's, it's a white Southern constituency that is really angry and displeased by the civil rights gains of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And so, you know, there's that overlapping there. But the religious right became a movement to take over a party. And that is what the religious left refuses to do. That, that there's, there's this argument about, you know, being morally above the fray and being this moral center. And I'm sorry to say, or not sorry to say, but, you know, you can be all moral that you want. You have no power. Who cares? Like if, if you want to 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 implement to be an agent of change, you know, talking is fine, but doing is better. That's definitely understandable. Um, I feel like the art. I feel like you and I read the same article on the Religion News Service website. The um, the religious left needs a dose of political partisanship, which was published yeah. just a week ago, and it was a really good article. Uh, we'll be linking it in the description of the show. But I I think that it notes a lot of really important stuff, and one of the big things that I think that it noted was the appearance of. Uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote here because I don't want to mess it up. I believe it was, yes, it was when Ronald Reagan showed up and it was at the end of a concentrated operation to get white evangelical voters to the polls. And the quote that he said was, I know you cannot endorse me, but I endorse you and everything you do. And the parallels between that and Donald Trump, to me, are very interesting. Not that Reagan and Donald Trump are the same, but their sort of mentality when it comes to the strike me as similar, especially when Donald Trump goes out and talks about destroying the wall, uh, not destroying the wall, when he comes about destroying the separation of church and state, the Johnson Amendment, these things strike me as similar. And And I am kind of curious, do you see the parallels there? 
I think there's parallels, and I think even more parallels. And I'm not, and I'm not gonna go that. I mean, you you could even make that you know Reagan when he did his uh, uh, Westinghouse hour was or you know whatever uh, electronics company who was the sponsor of that show he had. He basically was America's first reality TV star. But I'm not gonna go that far. But certainly there is an aspect of the fact that Reagan was divorced, and I believe he was the first president elected who had been divorced, and that there were serious, you know, he was the governor of California, he was a Hollywood uh, a personality, so certainly he had a lot of the misgivings that evangelicals talk about, you know, these worldly people, and so he certainly, to use more religious language, he was a very strange vessel uh through which they would carry on their message. And so, yes, I think there's very good parallels in terms of uh, these two figures, right? Uh, Donald Trump and and Ronald Reagan. Uh, In terms of, you know, that they're not these figures that you would think of them as... uh, as ideal figures to carry on the the politics of the religious right and particularly the evangelical right, but at the same time it tells you a lot about a religious movement that becomes a political movement and it's very pragmatic in terms of what they want to do, and they don't care who you are as long as you get them their stuff. And of course, they haven't been successful in getting everything they want, but they have been getting more successful over the years. And I think as well, uh, you know, people have made this argument that, you know, they got swindled by Donald Trump. Certainly Michael Shermer did a very unintelligent article about that in Political Magazine, which I blasted <laughs> in my own blog. Uh, but the fact is that they're getting what they what they paid for. It was a very smart political uh, move by them. <laughs> And so that's what's very different from the religious right from the religious left. I mean, the religious right claims the moral high ground. They certainly don't have it, but they have the power to make their moral high ground very you know, <laughs> policy. While the religious left is, you know, they, 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 for the most part, have been very content as saying that things are immoral, but not very keen of getting dirty and, and playing politics. So do you, I I am kind of curious, do you think that the religious left's not necessarily refusal to do what the religious right did, but sort of their their attitude towards getting down and dirty in the fray and doing what the religious right did, do you think that's a good thing for secular individuals such as me and you who are also fairly progressive? Well... That depends, and again, we, we're my argument is about power, right? It's the fact that it, you know there's a vacuum there, and so thank you for because that's a great segue for talking about the sector left, and and I'm gonna go back a little bit, and so also around these days, uh, in the friendly atheist podcast, Hamant and Jessica, the host, were talking about these piece in the New York Times. 
and they went into this argumentation of you know, ignoring the secular left and how politicians ignore secular, uh, secular voters, and they dwell a little bit on a comment, which I don't remember if they got from this article. I can't find it, so I'm not sure if they read another piece. They were referencing to another piece uh, that said that basically the, the, the Democratic Party was a secular party. And so they would dwell into these line of argumentation of, oh, well, you know, if they're a secular party, there are no more secular politicians, and why they, you know, we don't have any power, and whatnot. And I think the, the way that secular is defined, it's by atheists and by the people who are talking about the Democratic Party being a secular party, are two different ways of using the word. And so when we're talking about the secular movement having no power, and I think that it's precisely true, there's very little power that is held by the secular movement, especially vis-a-vis to the religious right. But also it's the fact that the Democratic Party, even if their politicians or their candidates kind of like do the God thing and references to that, they are a very policy-oriented party, and they're not necessarily very good at beyond their, you know, self-expressions of faith, actually at creating the kinds of coalitions that Republicans have been able to build. Now, to one extent, that is because the movement came for the... The movement took over the party in the Republican case. In the case of our movement, we're waiting for the Democrats to come to us. And I think that's where I... I say that there is a vacuum. And so I, I, for those of us who are very progressive in our politics and who agree with the secular left, with the religious left on many issues, or at least with elements of the religious left on many issues, the fact that they don't hold power, they don't, they don't even have uh, the intent of you know, getting dirty is a very bad thing. But I think it's also a very good thing because if we get our stuff together, we could actually fill that void. And so I think if if the religious the religious institution in the left are not uh, doing their job, we should be doing it. I definitely agree with that. But one of the things that I've been thinking is that these these articles uh, you've mentioned you've mentioned a few names from the New York Times article, but these are public figures who are vocally Christian and also progressive, or in a few cases, vocally Jewish, vocally Muslim, vocally Skith, and who are politically progressive. Do you think that we have equivalent figures among atheists? Or not not necessarily among atheists, but among either non-theists or individuals who would be classified as members of the secular left? Uh, yes, there are. The question, I mean, do they have the profile that uh, Reverend Barber and uh, Reverend Wallace have? No. But there's leadership in the secular movement. There are, and there's a lot of organizers and good people doing work out there. And and again, I think there's a there's a there are limits to where you know how, how far we can go. Right now, 
because to some extent uh, making, you know, uh, getting secular people to do things, it's a little bit like herding cats. Um, it's a, yeah, to many ways, it's a very intellectual movement. So there's a, there's a good part in, in that obsession with intellectualism, which is like questioning everything. But that means that you spend a lot of time discussing and a lot of, enough time to it. <laughs> Uh, and so I think there's the space to develop some national leadership that can, you know, hopefully equate and surpass the, the figures in the religious left. But I don't think that's going to happen now. But I think we should be, or at least the leadership in, in, in secular organizations, particularly the leadership that is politically progressive, I hope that they're working on that, on raising those profiles of those persons. Uh, and I have my ideas of who those people are. Uh, I'm not going to mention them right here. I don't want to put them on the spot uh, when they show up in this podcast. Oh, I'm a, a national leader. <laughs> but uh, but certainly, they, you know, they, they, there needs to be some groundwork. And I don't know to what extent the groundwork is building or there's a process already. But I, I, I want, think there are figures that can, that can be that type of leadership. I want to go ahead and clarify that I was asking for your personal opinion. I believe, I agree with the things that you said. I do believe that there are individuals who, if they aren't already considered like the sort of people that I think that they are, like leaders, then they definitely have the potential to be. I was just curious what you thought. Um, so let's see. Hmm. I think that it's worth noting that there are rare instances of non-believers who are members of the secular left who are in positions of legislative authority, but they're almost exclusively, actually no, exclusively as far as I know, they reside in state legislatures, not in the National House of Representatives or the National Senate. They don't have any national authority, but in case anyone's curious, there are non-religious people in state legislatures, just not... And actually, there was a very good profile of Athena Solomon, uh, yep. a state legislator in Arizona by Kimberly Winston, uh, who both were speaking at the uh, Secular Coalition of America that was meeting recently. So yeah, that those figures and the, those state leaders are out there. Uh, the question is, you know, when do seats open so these these leaders can try to move up uh, the ladder uh, in the party? But that also that you know, I, I want to talk to another aspect of the secular left, and it's the fact that. Yeah, it's something that I agree with Jessica and Hamad, is that you know these, all these attention to the religious left or the potential for religious left, but the fact is that young people in the United States are becoming increasingly secular. And I'm looking at an old report uh, four years ago uh, that we did in, in the summer of 2013 when I was still there, um, which was the Economic Value Survey and one of the things they did, or we did, was 
develop these uh, groupings of uh, religious conservative, religious progressive, religious moderate, and secular progressive. And to by far the non-religious, or actually the, uh, it wasn't secular progressive, but the non-religious who were mostly progressive, uh, are by far the younger. Uh, Religious conservatives are the oldest, so you know the future of the country. Uh, it's more. I mean, it. I mean, we're not saying that there cannot be no backlash, but certainly secular progressives are are potentially uh, becoming or are going to become a larger share of the Democratic Party. And actually, here among Democrats, 28% were religious progressives and 17% were non-religious. But among Republicans, there were twice as likely to be conservatives as than, than the progressives in the Democratic Party. So in the Democrats, 28% were religious progressives, and 56% of Republicans were religious conservatives, and only 6% were non-religious. So what we're saying is that basically the Democratic Party is becoming the secular progressive party, not just in terms of the fact that they just want to focus on policy, <laughs> but in the fact that their constituency is increasingly secular and progressive. And so that was that report four years ago. Uh, more recently in April, uh, Dan Cox, who is the research director at PRRI, wrote a piece uh, on 538 on Don Bet on the emergence of our religious left. And one of the things that he points out, uh, using an analysis of the general social surveys, that half of liberals, so 49% of liberals under the age of 30, are religious nuns. So people who identify as ideologically liberal, half of the liberal, young liberals, are basically religious nuns. And so that tells you that the future of the Democratic Party and the future of liberalism in America is secular. I think that was a really strong statement. So now, now that that's been said, I am kind of curious. Do you have any final thoughts related to this topic? Oh, I can keep going for hours. But any particular final thoughts that um, I think it's one Yes, that you know, for years, every once in a while, we talk about the religious left reemerging. It never happens. It doesn't happen for several reasons. It's, it's not as cohesive as the, as the religious right, uh, because the Republican Party, particularly the evangelical uh, cohort of the religious right, which is the most uh, numerous, the largest group in there. Uh, it's very cohesive, not in terms of the religious conservatism, but also of the economic conservatism. They have bought these, uh, you know, these free market, uh, unfettered free market ideology that is running rampant in the Republican Party. So it's interesting. It's very economically libertarian to, to a large extent. And, of course, it's very nationalistic, and that's why uh, actually in, in one of my in one of my blog posts, I talk about the, the evangelicals and Trump, and the fact is that they are the most likely to say that they, the, the country started going to hell in the 1950s, basically. And so they were very 
keen on making America great again as they thought America was great. And it was a segregated America with women working at home and no other minorities, only only oppressed black people and a few Latinos in the Midwest, in, in the Southwest. With that said, I still think that you know, I agree with, with Hemant and, and Jessica in the Friendly Atheist podcast. There's little tension to the secular left. I think those of us who are part who are secular and progressive, we should be screaming louder and trying to get our voices beyond our circles. Uh, and also, you know, augment the voices of those secular progressives that out out there uh, either already involved in politics or encourage them to get involved in politics. I think that so some of my final thoughts on this are going to include topics that we're almost certainly going to come back to later, so I'm not super worried about them. One of the things that I wish that we could have talked about and focused on more, but there weren't enough resources for me to have like a super firm opinion on it, is this thing among the religious left where not only do they refuse to have a mission, they also refuse to call themselves the words that people who are on the secular left use. Words like progressive, words like liberal, to a certain extent even words like democrat. And this was talked about in the New York Times article where Dr. Barber, the section on Dr. Barber focuses very specifically on this. And this lack of willpower is going to be poisonous to them because for all, for all of the terribleness of um, Ted Cruz and of Mike Pence, they call themselves Christians first and conservatives second. They own that conservative label. They're proud of it. And that might be because they are more politician than preacher, but if preachers and religious believers of the left are going to go out and vote, and they're going to go out and form coalitions, they need to be willing to say what they are. And I'm interested in the religious left. I pay a lot of attention to this topic. I pay attention to these figures I know their stories, and that's why it's so weird to me that they are so weak on this, and that is what it is. They want to form a coalition of the opposition. They want to form a coalition of people who they believe are on the right side, but they're not going to talk in partisan language, which is weak. I don't view that as a sign of strength like they do. To me, it's a sign that they refuse to acknowledge what they really are, and that's going to inhibit their abilities to organize effectively. It's going to inhibit their abilities to turn out to the polls, and it's going to make them a weaker coalition overall. And I'll have to say amen to that. And with that, we're going to close this episode. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to our feed, review the podcast in iTunes, like our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter. This was Juan Navarro Rivera and Luciano Gonzalez.